Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. I created this podcast to promote collective healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that as different as we may seem, we're all just people and we all carry stuff. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Jen Hardy. Jen is a licensed psychologist with a private practice in Maryville, Tennessee. She got her PhD in counseling psychology from Penn State. And while she was there, she received specialized training in psychodynamic and feminist therapy, attachment theory, and career-related issues. Wanting to help a larger audience than could ever fit on her clinical schedule, she began writing and continues to write on Instagram about relationships, career issues, resilience, self-compassion, and whatever else is on her mind. I personally follow her account. I love it. And I think you would like it too. A quick note, I am not a licensed therapist or medical professional, and although our guest is, this piece is intended for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding medical or mental health conditions. Jen, welcome to the Apologies Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm admittedly a little nervous and I'm, I'm being curious about why I'm nervous about being here. I'll try to make this fun and enjoyable. <laughs> so we've gotten some of your professional bio already, but I'd love to learn just a little bit more about you as a person. So how would you describe yourself in a short paragraph? I, yeah, like, okay. I really like to read and listen to music. I am really introverted. So people need to not take personally when I need a lot of space. I like a lot of space and quiet time and I'm very much in my thoughts. It is important to me to be funny and be around funny and creative people. And I'm a mom and a wife and I have two kids and they are my favorite people on the planet. And I'm a therapist amongst other things. And so I love talking to people who love what they do and you love what you do. And I, do. I love on the landing page of your website, you write, let me start by saying, I think I may have the perfect job. I love being a psychologist and that just makes me so happy. So what is it <laughs> that you love so much? Yeah, I think that people, it speaks to my strangeness, perhaps, that I, I'm in an unusual line of work to say, I love it so much when people come to me and, and talk about all of the really hard things that they're going through or have been through in their life. But uh, I think that I've always been drawn to real, authentic, intense encounters with people. I don't like that kind of small talk fluff. I like being real with somebody. And I've always, you know, even looking back on me as a kid, I've been somebody who has a, a altruistic streak. I liked being the person 
that was not going to judge somebody for who they were and that I wanted to be able to be on their team and help them out because I just really believe in people's capacity to like live up to their potential. And so doing therapy work, you know, I don't see clients as broken people who need to be fixed. I see them as human beings who have survived hard things and are are working to get back to themselves again or heal. And so I can really like join with that. We're we're collaborating on this to help them feel better. One of the things I I resonate with what you said was liking to get into the real stuff. So again, I'm an introvert, but I always tell people like I'm an introvert who's really curious about people. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like you're kind of the same. And I think that's something people don't get is that it's not that introverts don't like people. It's like we hate small talk. Like we love people. We just we like the realness of people. Yeah. Yeah, we like one-on-one conversations. I did some group therapy during my training and I found like it was just a lot of data for me to take in. There was just so many layers to not just what the person is saying, but how are the other people responding to this and what are the group dynamics unfolding and and how does that tie into the dynamics that they are bringing in from their early life experiences. I couldn't hold all the layers. And I, I feel like extroverts are probably better at that. Uh, I've, I've always just liked the, the one-on-one deep conversation and, and that is therapy. And I, I love story. I love like memoir is my favorite genre. I just really have a curiosity about human experience. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good line of work for me to be in. And you're, so you're a psychodynamic therapist. What does that mean? Or what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I uh, probably do not practice in the traditional strict way that we would think of psychodynamic work, which is like the little sibling to psychoanalysis, which is very like formal and analytical. And so uh, my Cliff Notes version of this, and this really just, I use it to influence how I understand person and their problems that they're bringing is I believe that our early life experiences really shape the way we look at ourselves. We look at the world and we look at the people around us. And when we can come to understand what those beliefs are, what those patterns are, then we can live our lives with greater self-awareness and we can be more intentional. What that means is we can find ourselves replaying these early life patterns in other relationships. Well, maybe we don't have to replay those patterns. It's just kind of the default setting that we're accustomed to. And so psychodynamic work is about identifying those patterns and then saying, all right, how do we change those in a way that you will feel healthier and more satisfied with your life? And you also have done specialized training and do some focus work in feminist therapy and attachment theory. And I'm going to have to check myself because I am I'm kind of obsessed with attachment theory. I'm a big nerd about it. (laughs) So we can get to that. But I do want to ask, what is feminist therapy? Yeah. So this is where I kind of break away from the psychodynamic world, because uh, though not a lot of psychodynamic therapists necessarily practice like this, uh, there would be much more of a kind of a hierarchy in place, kind of a doctor-patient 
relationship. And that kind of stems out of the history of its connections to psychoanalysis. And I just kind of fundamentally disagree with that. So feminist perspective would say we both are experts. We have different knowledge sets. I'm an expert on psychology. They are an expert on their own life. We need to be collaborating together because ultimately they're the one who have to live with the consequences, good or bad, of the insights and the choices that are made from therapy, right? So another big piece of feminist therapy to try to narrow that power imbalance is demystifying the therapy process. So I am somebody who's going to explain everything assuming that like, cause they have the right to the information. I'm not going to have somebody just kind of say, just trust me on this thing. Now I'm going to tell them what the thing is. Then they get to decide if we do it or not. Or like if somebody calls me for a new appointment, I'm going to explain in just a lot of detail the process. They're not going to be surprised by anything. They get to come into a first appointment feeling totally prepared and they get to help co-create the session. It's not going to be me calling all the shots. The other nice thing about feminist therapy is it recognizes that there's a lot of social forces and cultural forces that aren't within our control. And I feel like that's kind of a weakness of psychodynamic therapy is it's very focused on family of origin. But the way I am perceived in the world and the way people respond to me is in fact based in part on my presentation as a white woman who looks middle-class-ish and is in a relationship with a person of a different sex. And so the way they respond to me is different than, say, if I was uh, an older Black man who's gay. right? And, and so we can't separate the, the social from the, the individual. So, that, so is feminist therapy something that would only apply to those who identify as women? or Because it sounds like these themes kind of touch on a lot of things. Good question. So it was, I think, predominantly developed by women. It was not seen as an independent, standalone therapy approach. It's more a philosophy that you can overlay and integrate with any other theoretical orientation. And so it says feminist. And so people say, oh, this is about women. But really, it's trying to speak to the ways that society holds us back from living our full selves. So kind of like the boys don't cry social message. Like we would say, no, boys and men should be able to cry. And we may need to help them do that because society has told them that that is a really bad thing to do. I love that. And I'm curious about it because although you you kind of touched on like psychodynamic therapy being like the first cousin of psychoanalysis. And then we think of Freud who maybe didn't have the most progressive views about women. So it sounds like we've come a long way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to have really great supervisors during my master's degree, but also my doctoral degree who all sort of leaned in this psychodynamic ish, sometimes interpersonal therapy and and also feminist therapists. And so I feel like 
you know, what is my theoretical orientation? Well, it's, it's kind of what I was mentored in from supervisors. I'm not somebody who likes to read a bunch of psychology in my spare time. I have to remind clients of this because they'll be like, you need to watch this documentary about this murderer and what he did. I'm like, no, (laughs) no, I don't. (laughs) I don't, I don't do a lot of psychology in my spare time or people at, at parties who are like, oh, you must be totally analyzing me right now. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not because I'm not at work and that's not what I'm supposed to do. And even when I'm at work, it's not in the way that you think of like, oh, I'm kind of some detective looking around for clues to solve the mystery and then slap some analysis on somebody. That's just not how it goes. Yeah, I get that as as a documentary filmmaker. It's like, I think people think I sit around watching these highbrow whatever. I'm like, no, I want to, I do this for a living. Like I want to come home and watch. Like, I mean, sometimes I watch good things, but I'm like, no, I want to watch like the trashiest like reality thing I can find that will let me just turn my brain off. I feel like for me, the clearest indicator of my stress level is the kind of TV that I'm drawn to. So the more stressed I am, the like junkier the TV is. I'm picturing the graph right now of that relationship. (laughs) I think that probably applies to a lot of people. I, I watched a lot of Real Housewives during my doctoral program because it was like all I could digest at the time. There was no like international films or no documentaries. I was just like done yeah. with learning. There's there's been a lot of selling sunset in my life lately. So <laughs> selling sunset. I, yeah. I, I like man, there that formula. They figured out that formula and it, it's good. It's great. Yeah, it's it's good and bad at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So, so you write on your website that career relationship and identity issues are like your favorite thing. So mm-hmm. what about those interests you? No, it's like I'm such a strange person because psychodynamic therapy is, is really different than career counseling. I mean, they're pretty much like opposites. And I think how it speaks to me is because I like variety. I like variety and they have really different energies to them. And like, just as I was really fortunate to be paired with great supervisors and my masters and my doctoral programs, I was really fortunate to get a graduate assistantship at career services at Penn state. And I, you know, I admit I didn't really want to work there. I thought I'm not going to like this at all. And, and then I ended up really loving it. And I think it's because I like that team approach. It's really empowering. These are problems that are solvable and you can make a huge difference in a person's life very quickly, which feels different than psychodynamic work where we might be saying, okay, you're going to be working on intentional aware dating so that you aren't like marrying a version of your dad. And that is, that's a long process, right? And so I think I like the compliments. I I think it all comes back to, I really have a curiosity about the way people relate to themselves and the way people relate to other people. And career is just such an expression of our identity. And so then it all ends up fitting. 
And I want to get into some of the sort of the, I'll call it like the outreach work you do on Instagram. Before I get into that, I wanted to call attention to one specific post I saw. You had a video shouting out people who are doing the work in therapy. And I am a huge fan of therapy, <laughs> but for people who have never done it, I think the term hard work can be kind of hard to comprehend when we're talking about essentially like talking, like talking about things in therapy. So what, for people, especially who've never gone through therapy, what makes it so challenging and so hard? Yeah, I think it's the vulnerability. It's just being very honest and maybe speaking out loud things that you've known, but you've never said out loud to anybody. And there's real risk in that vulnerability because especially early in therapy, I mean, you're saying this to a stranger. This is like a trust exercise here where especially if folks haven't had people in their lives who have been particularly trustworthy. And uh, so I I think it's the vulnerability piece. And, And I also think it's showing up consistently, consistently doing the work and recreating the defaults, changing the defaults, that's that's harder than people recognize. And if they say, oh, it's not that hard, then I'll say, okay, spend a day opening doors with your non-dominant hand and tell me how easy it is to change defaults. Ooh, I like that. Because <laughs> that should be a really simple thing. And actually, man, you've got to like catch yourself in the moment and you've got to make a lot of mistakes and notice and redirect. And that, that's emotional energy. Speaking of emotional energy, I want to check in because I know that when we scheduled this, you said, you know, you were pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone because you're usually the one asking the questions and listening. So how are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Okay. I feel like that anticipatory anxiety uh, is uh, really uh, bad at judging how um, stressful situations actually are going to be, right? It's that uncertainty piece. Uh, anxiety doesn't like uncertainty. And then as soon as you like are, are in it, you're like, oh yeah, this is a normal human encounter. I can do this. Well, and I love that <laughs> because I think that gets to the point too, like you as a therapist are not immune to anxiety. Oh yeah, sure. It's because I, I think it's about I, I don't think that the work of therapy is getting to some perfected state where nothing ever hits you or impacts you. I, I think that that's like the patriarchy talking. <laughs> I don't think that that's like what we should be striving for as, as humans. I, I think it's about saying, can I be in tuned enough to my internal experiences and approach myself with, with kindness and compassion. And, and sometimes that is pushing yourself to do the hard thing. And, and sometimes that's about stepping back, but just saying, I got to like build up that wisdom over time, just knowing yourself really well. So I first became familiar with your work through your Instagram account, which the last time I checked had almost 130,000 followers. When and why did you decide to, or I guess mainly why did you decide to launch this account? Yeah. So the, I had been feeling, I had been in private practice, solo practice for a few years, and I was feeling really settled with that and liking it. I had a good flow, and I was just feeling like there was this piece that was kind of missing energetically for me in my career. And so I'm, I'm a really intuitive person. So I just spent a lot of time just saying, huh, be curious about that, see what comes up. And I realized I was not having enough 
creativity in my job. And so I realized I needed some more creativity and I had used to write a lot and I thought, you know, I should write something. And so I started writing something and I really liked it. And so I thought, oh, I, you know, I want to try to try to do this, try to get published. And so I got connected to an author who said, you have to have a platform. And so that's why I joined Instagram. Along the way, I realized, Jen, you don't like reading self-help. You don't like reading psychology books in your spare time. Why are you writing them? And so then I kind of redirected and started doing more novel writing. But like, you have to teach yourself how to write a novel, like, and you've got to learn it over time. And so, you know, it's, it's a process that I think people might say, oh, you've been doing this for a long time. It's not going to happen for you. And I'm like, well, I guess it doesn't really matter if it does happen or not. And I'm not really, really ready to give up on myself yet. I think I still got some time here to give it a shot. So, well, if you ever want like a halfway point between that and your novel, I feel like you're, you're, content would make a great like I don't know coffee table book like post-it wisdom or something I thought about it I've had people mention this and I've tried different business ventures it's been a good process for me because I tried to sell these calendars and I've tried to sell wooden blocks with quotes burnt into it and I have e-courses I admit I'm, I'm I'm not a good entrepreneur this is not what I'm good at so I like look at it and I'm just like ah, but I could lose money I don't want to Or I'd have to figure out postage and sales tax. And that sounds not fun at all. (laughs) I like the honesty. And also, like you said, the creativity of yourself when you started writing sort of nonfiction and then interrogated what you really wanted to do. Totally get if you don't want to share this, but are you able to share a little bit of what the novel is about? Or are you keeping that private? You know, this, you know, the superstitiousness of a writer is if you tell people your idea, someone will steal it and write it. Totally fine. (laughs) But you're still working on it. Um, so I've written two and a half, but I, I have not written, I did not write very much at all in 2022. I just sort of, I think, needed a break. And I, I spent a lot of family time, which was really lovely, a lot of time reading. And I'm trying in 2023 to get back to it because I feel like I'm feel really satisfied and happy and energized when I am. But it's a lot of balls to keep in the air. And I'm not interested in working all the time. So I know like I could have done it. I could have made myself do it. I know how to make myself produce massive amounts of work. I like To get through a PhD program, you are good at pumping out massive amounts of work. But I don't like treating myself like that. So I just accept I'm just not going to be as productive. And that's okay. Well, and what you're already putting out is having an impact. Again, even if it's going in a different direction. I, Like I said, I personally love your Instagram account. And one thing I wanted to note is that in the bio of that account, you write, this isn't hashtag therapy, it's Instagram. And that struck me because if you think about the dearth of mental health care providers and the needs of people for mental health care, not to mention the fact that even if they can find someone, it's often financially out of reach. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that people might be really relying on that and and yeah. might be seeking quote unquote therapy wherever they can find it. So even though it's not therapy and for this reason, I read a disclaimer at the start of the interview, this interview is not therapy. Let's be <laughs> clear about that. We're just chatting, but even though it's not therapy, are there still 
insights or tools that people can draw from whether it's your account or other, like there's so many therapy or growth Instagram accounts. I think some, I think they're not all created equally as my opinion, yeah, yeah, but you know, sure. things that people can utilize to improve their mental health or, or well-being. And, and this goes from whether we're talking about an Instagram account or any number of like free resources, books, articles, like, I guess, can people take an active role in their mental health care, even if they don't have the privilege of working with a therapist? Uh, for sure. The idea of therapy, that is a pretty modern invention. People have been working through hard things for millennia. And though therapy can be a really special place, it is definitely not the only place. I liken social media posts like what I do and other folks do. is It's like reading a self-help book. They're not all created equal. You have to sort out what applies to you and what doesn't. And I just, the, the, the feminist therapist in me thought, I've got to just be really clear. This is, I'm not your therapist. Because we've all seen those parasocial relationships where people, of course, they make money off of you believing that you are connected to them. And they get more followers. Like they, it, it, there are advantages to them to blur the line. And I just, uh, ethically, that doesn't feel good to me. So I just try to be really clean on what, what I am and what I'm not. There's also a lot of good vibes only in mm -hmm. toxic positivity type imagery and rhetoric on social media. And so it ends up feeling like we're like essentially only allowed to feel this really certain narrow set of feelings instead of this full spectrum of humanity. We end up shrinking this window of like what we're yeah, quote unquote allowed to feel. I know in my own experience, I've seen this progress into like numbing and, mm -hmm. and dissociating from things. And through working with my therapist, I learned that what I often perceived to be anxiety is actually anger because I didn't feel like I was allowed to express. Yeah quote, negative feelings. So I ended up repressing that because it didn't feel safe just feeling it. And so as we've established, since we all of us are human, even therapists, I'm just curious, what kind of feelings do you have the hardest time making space for? Oh, well, I thought you were going to ask a very different question. That's, this is oh, a good question. What did question. you think I was going to ask? Um, Okay, so my brain is pretty distractible. So I already forget the question because now it's like thinking of what what's the hardest um the hardest feelings for me i don't do well when i'm in a stance where i really feel like i have to defend myself and have to defend like my skills my stance my choices i don't like that feeling i don't know what emotion that would be i don't like the that space is hard for me it's not it's, it's an anxious feeling, but it's not really anxious. I wouldn't say that it's sometimes there's a little anger, but I think there's a little fear in there. I don't know. I, I, I that kind of blend. I don't like that positioning. I'm, pr I'm pretty good with anger. So I would not say. <laughs> I'm getting better at it, but it was, it was revelational to be like, Oh wait, I, in my little feelings journal, I never, ever see the word anger. Why is that curiosity? Um, <laughs> I remember the question I thought you were going to ask is why do you think everybody has to be so positive all the time? 
And well, so why do you? Well, you know, I think there's, it depends. I feel like that's the uh, therapist answer to every question. <laughs> it depends. It, it made me think of the attachment stuff that you're really interested in. And I don't know that this is always it, but I was kind of thrown into the attachment world. My first grad assistantship was coding lots of moms and babies, babies being put in distressing situations to see then how mamas responded, right? And to understand what helps secure attachment. And I remember this professor talking about uh, these behaviors that are called, she called upreg, means upregulation. And babies who would end up coding on the more attachment anxious end would have mamas who did more of this. So if the baby is upset, it's fine. It's fine. Here's a toy. Here, look here. Look here. And they're talking like this. Be happy. They're smiling. And the baby's like crying because the annoying researcher is doing something, took the toy away or whatever, and they're upset. And I, so I just think that there's some amount of like upregulation in our culture people who have a hard time tolerating the harder feelings and, or they had caregivers who had a harder time tolerating the hard feelings. And so it's, let's put a smile on our face. Let's have a happy smile, a happy voice. And uh, yeah, there's the uh, Instagram version of that for sure. Oh, I'm just thinking about how I'm cultivating my separation anxiety written dog with even more of that because I only talk to her in a happy voice. Are you upright? <laughs> I upright to my dog. But yeah, that's another conversation for another day, as is a full exploration of attachment theory. But I realized in all of my nerdy obsession with it, for those folks who don't know, what is attachment theory? Uh, so it's a really cool theory that John Bowlby, but Mary Ainsworth and some other folks started doing work on saying, can we look across species, not just humans, but across species, typically like primates and things. Um, can we understand the characteristics that shape the way that a baby bonds to a caregiver, traditionally the biological mother? But obviously, this has expanded out. And so they look at characteristics that cross species. So I feel like I'm giving really long explanations that are not really helping. Oh, it's if okay. you want to offer, you're, you're the attachment expert, Oh, no, too. I'm not going to. I would just, the basic premise is like how we connect. Am I saying this right? Mm -hmm. Like how we, how we learn to relate as infants, essentially, not even children, but infants, then kind of like you were talking about, we go to patterns can kind of shape what those mm -hmm. patterns look like in adulthood as we are trying to relate and connect with people in adulthood. Yeah. So that might be a nice way to get into this idea of repair and repairing yeah. ruptures, which is the, the crux of this <laughs> discussion. Uh, so the purpose of the Apologies podcast is to promote collective repair and healing. And so to do this, I invite my guests to share an apology that they have been carrying with them. So with all that in mind, Jen, what apology would you like to share? Yeah, I, I thought about this for a bit. I thought of a few different ones, but the one that I wanted to share was I remember in first grade. So to set the stage, I grew up in a really small farming community, like my school. First grade was you were two sections of first grade. So small little school. And so everybody knew everybody. And yeah, so, so I'm in first grade. I really love my teacher. And I don't remember all of the circumstance. I remember I lost, I think, markers. And 
I had decided that this one boy in my class had stolen them. Now, I was the anxious, perfectionistic, high achiever, even in first grade. So I was a credible accuser, (laughs) I guess you would say. And so I go to the teacher and I said, Craig, he stole, he stole my markers. And she's like, are you sure? Have you checked? I'm like, yes, I've checked. He's, he stole the markers. And, and she got him. He was just such the nicest kid. We, we weren't like in the same friend groups. I was friends with girls and he was friends with boys, right? It was first grade. But she walked him out in the hallway with me. We searched his backpack. I think she was sure. Like she believed me, this kid stole my markers and they weren't in there. And I had this kind of like frozen moment because I knew what I had done was wrong. Like, why would he have stolen my markers? It was like, I picked him at random because I think he was the kid that was getting picked on because I don't know for sure, but there was this perception of him being the poor kid. And though we were all farm kids, his parents had a pig farm, which meant manure, which meant you stinky, mm. which doesn't, you know, in adult land, you're like, what? But I never said sorry for that. And that was not okay. And the teacher never put, I found them like in my own backpack or something that we found them. And I never apologized. And that teacher, I'm not sure if she never made me apologize to him, but it always hung in my mind of like, what I did was wrong. Why did I single him out? That was not okay. So Craig, sorry. You did not deserve that. There was nothing about you that would have led me to believe that you were a kind of kid who stole things. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for being here, taking that time to do this interview and for all of the work you do to make our world filled with healthy, functional human beings. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I hope that this podcast as well. I like this idea. That was Dr. Jen Hardy, a licensed psychologist and content creator on Instagram. You can learn more about her life and find links to media interviews like this one at drjenhardy.com. I'm Lindsay Whistle Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts because of the algorithms and all the things it helps other people find the podcast, which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. The Apologies podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, with music by Taizo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share, and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on the Apologies podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com contact.